0: Hello, and welcome to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast, a conversational medley with four women who've been there, done that, and lived to tell about it. Welcome to episode number two of the Real Tech Real Life podcast. I'm Lori Williams, and I'm joined by Lori Asbury, Miriam Neruzzi, and Andrea Giametti. And on today's episode, we're going to be covering two different topics. The first is how to buy services from a systems integrator. The second is going to be a little bit of a quick fire, a chance to get to know us a little bit better. So sit back and enjoy the show, and don't forget to go to our website at www. Real tech, real life.com and give us feedback and take a look at our upcoming episode guide. Between the four of us, we've been involved in probably thousands of projects at this point as it, from a systems integration standpoint and as a systems integrator and probably on the other side of the table as well books and books have been written about you know how to sell and and deliver to customers if you are a systems integrator but there aren't that many uh sources for best practices or things to think about if you're a customer buying some you know buying a project or buying services from from an si so i thought with this group it would be um, a good topic for us to talk about some of those things and. And if you, if you think about the experience of the customer, or the, the journey, uh, it starts with sales. And Andrea, I think I would love to, you spent uh, several years, probably it felt like more than several, but uh, several years uh, running our sale, our, our uh, solution architect group, um, the pre-sales side and wondered if, you, you know, what the customers that you worked with, the prospects that you worked with, uh, could you tell up front who were going to be? Uh, the ones that got the most out of our services or were there, there, were there certain types of characteristics that you found as, as you worked with them that, that, that made it easier for us to do a good job for them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a few key things and I think one of them, and it's interesting, if I look back to prior to being a working for an SI, I was a customer and I look at how I bought and I think I actually did things all wrong um, <laughs> because I think when you're hiring a systems integrator, you really have to think, you know, they're going to be an extension of your team Um, you're going to be working very, very closely with them. And so it's almost along the lines of, uh, you know, it it is a job interview and you really need to look for folks that you're going to connect with. And I think this starts in the sales cycle. I would say, you know, starting in the sales cycle, look to partner with somebody, meaning, you know, be forthcoming with information because a good salesperson is really trying to dig in, understand your business, understand how to help you achieve your goals. I mean, that's ultimately what we're doing. You've got business goals. That you need to achieve, and we are going to come in and kind of help you those achieve you. There's a lot of tactical things that are going to happen underneath that. So honestly, definitely you need to look for folks who have done this before and have a good methodology and you know can differentiate themselves and all these kinds of things. But I think a lot of system integrators are going to come in with good stories along all of those things. And so it's really a personality thing. You know, who can I really partner with? Who's looking out for my business? Who's going to help me achieve my goals? Who's asked what my goals are? You know, if you simply, I think, come in as a systems integrator and start saying, okay, you want to, you know, move data from here to here and you want this and you want that. But don't start by saying, you know, what is it you achieve? What's success look like for you in six months to a year? Things like that. Um, I think those are the key things to really look for. Um, and I think those are the things that are going to differentiate because at the end of the day, it's a relationship like anything else. And you want to make sure you can find somebody, um, that you can work with. And I think going back, that's where I made a mistake when I was a buyer early in my career is that, you know, I wasn't giving them all the information, like what, you know, what's my budget and what are these things and all of that, because really, I think the more information you give, the more folks are going to help you realize kind of where your goals are and how to achieve those. So. I think off the top of my head, those are kind of the the things I would focus on.
0: But is 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 it difficult for a prospect to want to tell you all that because you're, you're often in a competitive situation? And and did you find it did they not tell you because they didn't know or because they didn't trust you yet or because they were afraid that it'd be used against you and you know or, or towards in your favor in the buying process?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely. There is some there. I, when I kind of used budget kind of loosely, yeah. I mean, there are times where you really don't want to share your budget. You need to understand from the integrator's perspective, you know, what's it really going to cost, you know, to get get where I'm going. Um, but I think there becomes a point in the sales cycle where if you feel like you've kind of built up the relationship, you feel like you're getting good data from them, it's worthwhile to understand because if they're telling you it's going to be a million dollars and you've got a four hundred thousand dollar budget, they need to help you realize either make the case going back that you're actually going to need a million dollars to do what you want to do or understand what can we actually do within our budget. Um, so that's where I think partnering, if you find somebody, and it's a little different, I think, with an SI versus a product.
0: So Lori you know, I'm curious as you were uh, in the early days of the workday practice, it, it's one thing to sell and to work with customers and prospects when, uh, when you're working with an SI that has a lot of experience uh, but as you were building the practice, how, what were the, the types of prospects that were most likely to engage with you? Um, that, you know, did you see some that you felt like, oh, we're just not ready to handle yet? Or what was that experience like?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great distinction. I think when you're early on building a practice and, and, uh, you know, you're not drawing, you're drawing more on your capabilities versus your actual experience. I think it's, uh, you know, worthwhile to seek out those part, customers who are capable of being partners in that situation, who, who get it, who understand it, who really believe in the value of the partnership. You know, um, Andrea used that word several times, and I think that is so true. It, it's, it's not just about gathering information about what they've done and what their challenges are, but I think that if you can also find that in your SI, an SI who's willing to share what their challenges are and the real deal about where they are. So when we were building practices, we were very clear that, hey, you know, this is where we are in our, our building a practice. And here's what we're doing. Here's how we're surrounding ourselves and our team in order to make up for the fact that we don't have Yet a lot of experience in this way. I think you also start small. You know, you look for those those customers that are a good match, and um, uh, you know, but but you do you start small.
0: Yeah, and the um, I think the other thing is you do sometimes have to walk away from some. Right, it is yes. difficult yes. to uh, to do them all, and especially when you're when you're you're new in the process. One of the customers that. I, and it will always be, I think, in my mind, is probably the best customer that I've worked with, uh, who I won't name on this, this podcast. But uh, it also happened to be one of the more uh, complicated and one of the larger projects and, and engagements that, that I've been involved in. Uh, they actually interviewed the team together. Uh, and I don't, don't mean that they wanted to interview each person, uh, you know, to see their background as much as they wanted to understand the personalities of the folks because they, they really wanted to build a joint team and they made a huge effort early on in making us all feel like we were in the same engagement. Um, the same, you know, driving towards the same goals, which is not something a lot of customers do, but there was never an us and them Thing, uh, which I do think is easy to, when it's a procurement situation, I think, you know, it's easy to, to, uh, for relationships to devolve that way. Uh, but they made a conscious effort. And actually one of the things that they put in their, um, their, uh, decision criteria was, is this a team that we can work with, um, and have fun with, which I think is awesome. I mean, they just did a, they did an amazing job of having a blended team and, uh, making everybody feel like they were all, you know, part of the same team, and it wasn't always easy at all. Uh, but it was, uh, we we had a good time together, and, and to the point that I think at one point we had sort of renamed the company, uh, the project to have the com- combination of of the two company names put together. But
1: um, I think yeah. That goes back to what I was kind of saying. I mean, what you're really looking for is a joint team that you all can work well together. Um, but your SI has to bring kind of that level of expertise and such as well. So, um, I think that's a key part.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that was unique in that situation is it. It was still a very. Um, difficult, maybe the wrong word, but certainly a uh, thorough procurement process. It wasn't like they let go of the negotiation or, you know, the the financial discussion. There were times we had difficult budget discussions as well that didn't go away, but it made it so much easier uh, to get through. And so I don't think that if anything, they got 10 times more out of us than they would have had, had they not engaged with us in in (laughs) that way. So, yeah. So, Hey, Miriam, you mentioned the
2: idea of, um, Lori, you mentioned the idea of interviewing the team, not for specific individual qualifications, but I know that's something that I always struggled with when sales would come and say, hey, you know, we we need to put forth specific individuals so that they get comfortable with the team. And that's always such a fine balancing act, you know, wanting to be able to share the folks who may be assigned to them and yet not allowing that to sort of drive your staffing decisions. So I'm just curious you know how you've come to think about that
0: over time. Yeah, I actually love to get Miriam's thought on that. I know you've probably had to be had, had to go down that path before.
3: Yeah, as I'm listening to this, I'm trying to actually use my current experience to see how if the outcomes would have been different had the team, for example, gone through the interview process. Um and I do know that a number of the team members other than me actually were part of the sales process and uh It really helped with the relationship building. But to your point, um, Lori, it is a difficult problem. And I know from an SI standpoint, uh, sometimes these deal cycles take a lot longer. So it's to guarantee that a resource would be available that happened to be part of the conversation with the customer who could join the team. is not always realistic. Um, But I, I don't think you can deny the fact that team dynamics make or break any project and that makes that make up to everyone's point to, to date has to do with that partnership, that the ability to work together as a single team. So I do like uh, the experience uh, that you shared with us, uh, Lori, with the team that the customer went through a lot of, uh, they, they acknowledged the importance of that interview process, making sure that team could come together, but I also acknowledge that it's not always realistic To have that luxury of having the folks introduced, interviewed, and available as the sales cycle goes on, Uh, but uh, given a choice, I don't see. I I think is absolutely the right way to do it. If especially bringing a team together that has never worked together before, trying to do something, and sometimes this is true of the customer project teams as well. They have never worked together as a team because they tend to come from various. Uh, parts of the organization.
0: Yeah. And I think, I don't want to leave the impression that I, that all customers should interview uh, consultants because first of all, I, I don't always believe that the customers are the best at identifying who's going to be the best for their project um, simply because they don't know them as well. Right. Um, and I know that, you know, one of the things that we've been lucky about is uh, the, the, I believe the staffing process that, that, that Appirio has used and, and um, the way that we look at resourcing is a bit more evolved than a traditional SI, which is here's somebody in cell D7, let's move them over to cell, you know, G12 and staff them on this project. Um, and and so I do think that with a good SI, they may uh, have a much better view for who the right folks are for your team. The second thing is, and I'm a huge believer in this, and I think this is an art, not a science, but I think it's the combination of the team that makes the difference. It's not one or two, and certainly you do have projects where one person is gonna carry the project, um, maybe out of necessity, or maybe because they're just that good. But the really, really good projects um, that I've worked with and, and managed and, and been a part of, if you look at a team of five folks, you can't really point to one and say, okay, well, this is the star. You point to each one of them, um, and it's really that, that team staffing that, that makes a, a huge difference. So we're now about halfway through our podcast, and we've only managed to make it through the sales part of the, the buying journey for a customer. Uh, I'd love to take the first segment of the next podcast and talk about uh, lessons learned from
2: the delivery perspective.
3: <laughs> what happens after the sales guys leave? Uh, you know, Win the deal and leave the show. Will that be a Uh, therapy
0: session or um, just a...
3: I think that definitely a reset button gets clicked at some point. (laughs) Um, But uh, that partnership thing, I think that there's a lot that happens based based on that initial partnership, but also how much the Deliver team can continue to build similar type of partnership to be able to actually work through all the craziness that happens when you start to deliver.
0: Yeah, and it is, it is also that handoff from sales to delivery
2: yes. I think make a big mm-hmm. difference. For segment
0: two, I thought we'd have a bit of a fun conversation. It occurred to me that our first podcast and a half, we've, we've had a little bit more uh, dialogue around work and work-related topics, so this will be a chance for our listeners to get to know us a little bit better. So for today's topic, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, some of the books that you guys may be reading. And Miriam, I understand that, that you've been, been reading a good one.
3: Well, it's interesting because uh, I don't know if, you, if any of you guys saw the article that uh, New York Times had on the Iranian New Year um, this past Monday. Um, somebody told me about the book that the same author had written. It's called uh, Funny in Farsi. Mm -hmm. So it's um, basically a biography of uh, an Iranian person living in America. So she's about the same age as I am. And I'm having a lot of fun reading this book. Really? Because everything she says, it sounds (laughs) like my life. (laughs) So I'm really enjoying it. It's like completely not the kind of book I've I've gone for. um, But I just, um, I'm finding it extremely entertaining.
0: Is this like the, the literate version of Shaws of Sunset?
3: Actually, no, it's it's, uh, it's more real. I think it's, a, it's just uh, all the various customs and things that go into being an Iranian and then trying to bring that out of the, to a different country. and want to live in another country who has no sense of what those things are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every one of the family members trying to figure out a way to hold on to some traditions, but yet explain why they do what they do. Yeah. to people around them who have no idea. So it kind of reminds me a little bit of my husband too uh, and what he's gone through to, to learn about what it's like to live with an Iranian family. <laughs> but it's, a, it's a highly entertaining uh, book. Maybe I'll, you guys can read it at some point and make sense out of me, Why what I do. <laughs> that,
0: sounds, that sounds great, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm You're
3: looking he... for a book like that, Miriam. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Got it. <laughs> oh,
0: that's funny. Lori, have you been reading anything recently?
2: Yeah, yeah, I have. I mean, I've, I've been sort of revisiting some books in sort of a daily meditation or daily reader format, um, like Melody Beatty. I don't know if you guys have ever read anything by her, but um, Journey to the Heart, Daily Meditations on the Path to Freeing Your Soul. Um, But the reason that I picked it up again is that I actually have this opportunity to work on a book with an author who already has several books out, but not one in this format. So I, I, you know, this idea revealed itself to me. I pitched it to him and he's all about it. So I'm actually reading it. And one of the reasons that I love this, especially in the business context, is That, you know, I think there's such value in living an integrated life. So not really sort of separating these things out. So I'm really fascinated by things like mindfulness in the business world and how you might incorporate meditation practices and other things um, in the professional setting. So, So yeah, that's what I'm up to in terms of my reading right now.
0: Wow, that's pretty deep. It is like deep.
2: That sounds but it's, like- a, it's a bite-sized <laughs> chunk though it's chunks though that's why i like the <laughs> the 250 words on it, each day you know rather than diving into the book and committing to the <laughs> the whole flow
0: yeah so I'm, I'm curious um talking about mindfulness in the business place which is um it, it is definitely a pretty hot topic right now i saw an interview recently with um i've forgotten the guy's name from linkedin but oprah was interviewing him talking about this topic and and i see it quite a bit um how do you actually see that practically working from a business standpoint lori
2: yeah i mean that's that's a great question i think a lot of it depends on the culture and how uh readily um uh, or how ready a culture is to embrace that that type of thing, but you know, I look to, uh, for example, some of the work that was done at Google that resulted in a um, a nonprofit institute being created uh, around these these concepts and these ideas. But there are other companies that aren't ones that you would think of as necessarily you know, either California-based or cutting-edge, who have embraced it as well. So it can be something as simple as having, um, you know, a, a lunchtime meeting with, uh, you know, uh, doing meditation, group meditation together. But one of the best books for thinking about this is, is called Mindful Work, How Meditation is Changing Business from the Inside Out uh, by David Gellis. Um, and that really touches on the work that Google's done, but also Aetna, General Mills, Target, So maybe that's a, that's a topic for a future podcast as well. We can dive a little bit deeper in
0: that. Yeah, I think actually I'd love to, uh, because it ties in directly with the, you know, the concept of deep work and which is also kind of a little bit of a buzzy thing right now, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about. And and we've talked about this before in in other Hangouts and other podcasts, but uh, I, I am really good at solving problems and going towards the fire um, and I'm not as good about making myself sit down and actually think and do things deliberately. And, and, uh, while I'm not afraid of, of detail, um, it's not where I gravitate towards. And the, you know, I, I can definitely tell a difference. I've had a little bit of a, you know, a slower couple of months than I have in probably a decade. And it, I can definitely tell a difference about how, uh, I respond to things and, and and explain things and think about things, uh, when I do have that luxury of, of really trying to be a little bit more mindful and a little bit, you know, uh, more, uh, deliberate in the way I look at that, at uh, work. So I'd, I'd love to, to do a topic on that at some point. I have nothing to add to it other than lots of questions. And it sounds like yeah, it Laurier is yeah. the the expert. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and Miriam's going to teach us Farsi in that same episode.
3: <laughs> Maybe <laughs> Good idea. I'm not sure sure it's gonna help you with the mindfulness, but <laughs> I'm gonna go like 180
1: degrees from Laurie Asbury, which is shocking, I know. Shocking. But um Comic. Yeah, I'm reading a bunch of different things, but one of them it was a Tim Ferris uh, uh podcast dude. Um, so and he's also highlighted in that Tools of Titans book, which is one that I've also kind of flipped through, but listen to most of the Todd. But I don't know if you've listened to the podcast with Jocko Willink, who was like the scary Navy SEAL dude. I have. Um, This is totally not something I would ever, ever pick up. But something about him fascinated me. And he's got a book called Extreme Ownership, which is basically kind of leadership um, based on the the Navy SEAL philosophy. Um, And so it's kind of interesting. I've been kind of going through it. And it's like I said, it's not along the lines of something I normally read. But something about him I thought was really kind of interesting, a little more hardcore than what I usually do. But then on the flip side. A girlfriend gave me um, a book. It's called Roar. It's it's on uh, food and fitness for the female physiology, I think. It's sitting behind me. Um, that's more in line with things that I'm often reading because basically nutrition and nutrition and fitness based on how it differs kind of with, between women and men and such. So that's been a good one as well.
0: That's hard but, to say too. Food and f- – say it again. Food, do, fitness, yeah, and female child. physiology. And-
1: it's the full tail's roar how to match your food and fitness to your female physiology for optimum optimum performance, Ooh. great health and a strong lean body for life. So, I read all this stuff. I haven't quite figured out how to have optimum performance, great health and a strong lean body for
3: life, but I just want performance. Forget the optimal part. <laughs> You're in a different level.
1: Well, when we after we do the mindful pod, mindful podcast, we can go into food and fitness and all the crap that I read on that, which I think just makes me more anxiety prone. But and and anyway. how much
0: almond butter do you eat a day?
1: Way too much. That's one of my problems. <laughs> <laughs> like.
2: Way too much. You have to exercise to support your almond butter habit.
0: (laughs) I think I've been so horrified by the political process and some of the stuff going on in D.C. these days that I realized how little I actually knew, A, about the process and B, about some of the stuff that I argue is wrong. Um, And so I have, uh, I mean, I'm certainly reading books here and there, but I actually spent a fair amount of time just reading some of the the more in-depth articles that have been written on you know how a bill becomes a bill and i'm not going to do the schoolhouse rock song although i could um <laughs> <laughs> but you know just some of the weird archaic like i went and read the the um what is it called the, the bird rule the other day about uh, you know how certain things can can get approved and not get approved in congress and um i, I know that i i was taught this at some point in school uh but I either a wasn't paying attention or B have just forgotten. Um, I went and read the, uh, the Trump budget, which was, uh, a, an, an exercise in, well, not mindfulness for sure. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, interesting. Uh, and so, so just some when I see something that really uh, kind of hits a nerve that I think is wrong, I've been trying to go and learn a little bit more about why. I see so many arguments going on and again on Facebook to the point that I, I really think Facebook is uh, going to be one of the casualties of this most recent election because I, I see more and more people disengaging from it for that very reason. But. I, I see stuff out there and people ramble on and on about this stuff. And then like, there was a, um, Miriam, I think you might, somebody might've seen this one, uh, a week ago and I'm not, it's not anybody's fault, but there had been this article written about this guy who was teaching school in Houston. And the article said that he said something that was fairly benign and the school was trying to get him thrown out. Um, and, these people are just ranting and raving about this and how, you know, he was were too concerned about being politically correct and blah, blah, blah. I actually went and found the the local news channel and the story about this guy. Oh my gosh, the stuff that he actually did was horrific. But that wasn't what got picked up by this one article. And, you know, they made it sound like he was being persecuted because he was a military guy and he had, you know, strong opinions and and they people didn't like that. And I'm just like, seriously, I mean, it's, it I do feel strongly that when people are posting things these days, if they don't go find one other article um, to corroborate it, not one that is. Um, uh, literally just taking the exact same words and putting in a different template um, but actually a different source article and I'm not going to get into the fake news topic but um, I do think that uh, I think that's really important and on that note that brings us to the end of episode number two we've survived yet another podcast we look forward to having everyone back next time but in the meantime if you have questions or comments go to our website at realtechreallife.com we'd love to hear from you